This podcast episode is part of the 8th QED Changemaker Series in November 2021. In this season, we will focus on the concerns of industry leaders across environmental, social and governance, or otherwise known as ESG issues. They will share their personal perspectives from various industry leadership vantage points to better arm us with information to make better corporate decisions. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, Principal Consultant at QED Consulting. Our guest today is the General Manager of Prestige at Werns Automotive. With more than seven years of experience in the automotive industry, he manages a number of supercar brands for Werns Automotive Private Limited, namely Bugatti, Koenigsegg, Remac, Pininfarina, Alpin, and Lotus. He has over 20 years of experience in the hospitality industry, having held positions at Shangri-La Hotel in Singapore and Intercontinental Hotels Group in a regional capacity. Let's welcome Sebastian Tan to the QED Changemaker Series podcast. Hi, Sebastian. Thank you for spending time with us today. How have you been? Quite good. Actually, I just came back from my short vacation. Oh, where to? Where to? Took a family out for a short cruise. Ah, nice. So maybe for the benefit of our listeners today, and mostly leaders, could you tell us a little bit more about Werns Automotive and your role as the General Manager of Prestige? Werns has been in the industry for a very long time, over 100 years in the business. We as a company carry a good range of brands from what we call the hypercars of the world like the Bugatti, which we recently opened the showroom in Singapore here, down to stable brands like Volvo, Renault, Jaguar Land Rover, even to the prestige brands like Bentley, Aston Martin. Some are the brands that we carry here in Singapore. And very soon, we will also be launching a new product which is somewhat on our discussion of our topic today, which is Polestar 2. Wow, okay. Since you've got this started, let's talk about your views on ESG, right? <laughs> now, whenever we talk about the environmental impact, we don't normally associate the automobile industry as a whole, right? With it being very climate-friendly in the first place. So, I mean, from your industry perspective, right, is that still true? And how is the automotive as an industry evolving to be more environmentally friendly? Maybe like three, four years ago, I would say, yeah, we're probably not very associated to being climate friendly. But you know, with how EU has progressed over the last couple of years especially, a lot of automotive has also taken on a very serious approach in going green. As you have seen over the last six months, let's not bring it too far back, uh, you've seen a lot of brands bringing in electric vehicles. It's part of going green in a sense. A lot of automotive companies have taken on a very serious approach in terms of reducing carbon emission, in terms of helping the environment, uh, so to speak. I guess it's going to be the new norm moving forward. Right. With this whole electric vehicle starting to become more widely adopted, could you tell us a little bit about your views on EVs and may help us understand both the opportunities as well as challenges to come? Well, actually, if you look at how the general public has received EVs, it's been quite optimistic. I mean, uh, as I speak to some of the EV owners or friends that were driving EV, actually, the feedback is kind of good because the car is actually very good to drive in our city kind of traffic condition because it's really no fuss. It really brings you point to point in a very easy manner, quiet, powerful to a certain extent. But I think more importantly, they're doing something good for the environment. I guess the underlining area is the ownership of an EV vehicle. It's still relatively high as we speak today. First and foremost, to buy an electric car, it's kind of expensive. 
Yeah, most electric cars are costing close to 200,000 with today's COE, you know, especially uh, just Wednesday, we hit the new record of 80,000, which is not music to our ears, actually, uh, from an automotive standpoint. It actually dilute the masses from coming to buy cars. It's not good in a sense, but this really pushed electric cars to a very high price point. How the tax structure works here in Singapore, it's, it's very much dictated towards the power of the vehicle. In this case, just mentioned earlier in my conversation, EV vehicles are relatively powerful. It doesn't help in a sense when the tax structure in Singapore, it's worked in accordance to power rating. So the cost of ownership, you know, i.e. road tax, could be quite high if the vehicle is kind of powerful in a sense. So that's one of those potential areas and challenges to EVs being massively adopted now. Hopefully that will change. <laughs> I guess the government has taken on a, a listening approach by the consumers. You know, they have given relatively good tax rebate based on uh, the first three years of ownership in a reducing term. Is there any other challenges that electric vehicles or EVs are facing as well, in Singapore especially? Of course, the other part, it's the ease of charging. In today's EV environment in Singapore, our EV are very much, literally batteries built into the car. They are big, you know, cells that are built into the car and it needs time for the car to be charged. So that actually sort of like translates to a certain group of people that can find electric vehicles useful because if you don't really stay in a landed house or you don't run in sort of like an SME where you can install a charger in your office environment so you can charge it, and you're not using it, it's kind of difficult for the masses to adopt because of the limited charging station. As we speak, you can see that the government has taken a lot of new approaches, opening up to companies to tender for electric charging stations. That's a good part of it. It's really sort of like hyped up in terms of the availability of charging stations all around Singapore. Even petrol kiosks today, you can see some of the newer petrol kiosks that's been renovated. They have charging station. But the downside of this is still the amount of time taken to charge a car. Oh, so how long does it normally take to fully charge a car, for example? It really depends on what kind of vehicle and what kind of charger that you're using. Some cars do have a quick charge function, you know. They can do a moderate charge, say 50% within like less than 90 minutes. But some can take even longer than that. A broad line will say at least between three to four hours for a decent amount of distance to be charged up into your car. You have a downside. Not sure if you're aware, Ryan, but in China, it's kind of interesting. Electric vehicles are kind of well adopted amongst the motorcyclists and the small goods vehicles because in China, they don't really charge the cars. The vehicles comes with battery packs. It's like a subscription. So they go to the station, they take out the battery pack, they put in a new battery pack and then they drive off. You're sure we're talking about cars and not phones, not back in the good old days where you can swap batteries? <laughs> yeah, cars. But of course, they are not the big ones, like, uh, what we call a small size uh, vehicle or goods vehicle. So that in its case, it's quite well adopted in the Chinese environment, in the Chinese market, actually. Will that be a problem? I guess, like what we are doing, whenever we are charging our phones, for example, I'm very new to this. We have like different heads to plug into different types of cars and then we'll have, wow, like the way you have USB, right? Multi-port. Uh, it won't be a problem because by and large, the cars use quite a universal kind of a charger, two or three types. And most of the charging stations, they do give the flexibility. That will not prove as a big of an issue, as you speak. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, if you look at it from a macro point of view, then what does it take for the entire industry to really, truly go green then? Well, I guess first and foremost is the uh, affordability. That's one. Secondly, it's the tax incentive. Like, I mean, that as consumers, everybody's driven by incentives. If there's a good reason why you can save a lot more money and at the same time help the environment, of course, it will help the take-up rate. And of course, the ease of charging has to be there. 
i.e. there must be an abundance of charging stations. Because you look at Singapore itself, we have a 600,000 kind of a car park population, 600,000 passenger vehicles kind of population. I can't really throw you a figure and say that what is sufficient. It's 300,000 charging stations sufficient. Well, it could be, it, it may not be because at the end of the day, it is a whole ecosystem whereby it's a lot of consumers being uh, socially responsible when they park the car to charge. They have to be mindful that they need to remove the car once fully charged. Because once you start hogging the lots, it becomes an issue with the other users around you. So that is actually quite a big fundamental shift in the consumer's mindset as well that's needed, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes I joke with some of my friends who do things about buying electric vehicles. I was just saying that, well, my biggest concern or take to them was sometimes due to business entertainment. Fortunately, we don't have to do it now. But in the normal environment, when you do business entertainment, you come back home at, say, like past midnight. And then you know your car is running low, below like 20% mark in terms of charging capacity. So you need to put your car on charge. When your house has maybe like 10, 15 EV lots, and then your friendly neighbours are all charging their cars. Then what happens? Do you wait for them to, you know, remove the car or you just go down the 15 lots and see, oh, which car is due to finish charging or has finished charging? And then what happens if the neighbor doesn't come down and remove the car? What happens to you? You then wait for another hour in a car or half an hour in a car for, for someone to take the car off the, the parking lots. That's where the ugly side of Singapore starts to happen. People start putting on social medias. I guess, well, we're not seeing this, but I mean, this, it may happen. I'm not sure, you know, because if you want people to really quickly adopt the world of electric cars. That's one of the big concerns actually. You could be living in an estate now that has got what 15, 20 charging lots and maybe only like 10 of your neighbours are driving electric cars. You never know like in a year from now, the shift in the electric population in your estate may just double or whatsoever and then suddenly whatever lots that's available right now is no longer available. There's definitely going to be some transitional pains but despite all this right, I mean from your point of view, the consumers are also starting to become more favourable toward being more socially responsible, right? You mentioned incentives being one of them, but I don't think that's the only thing. So what's fueling this shift in demand? Well, at the end of the day, it has shown that electric vehicles, uh, if you use them enough, it does save you compared to combustion engine cars. I guess there's been a lot of reports showing that if you do an average of like 2,000 kilometers a month, you do save an X amount of dollar compared to a combustion engine car. So that actually helps in a sense. I wouldn't want to say that the early adopters are towards a certain group of people, but true for the matter of fact, I do see a lot more electric vehicles owned by people who, who live in the landed estates and people who run small businesses. Who can afford that whole charging point at your home. That could become an ease for them and of course, if they're saving, then why not? And uh, not forgetting, a lot of people like to drive a powerful car and electric car is relatively powerful, I must say. I have to take your word for it. So let's shift gears to talk a little bit about Lotus. Its sporty aesthetic is really absolutely stunning. So I understand that Lotus is also committed to making the transition to be an all-electric brand. Wow. So maybe you can help us understand what are the key motivations and drivers behind making this very seismic shift to go all-electric. This started a couple of years ago. I mean, what's famous about Lotus is lightweight, performance, back to basic. A couple of years ago, of course, the ownership of Lotus is split between Geely and a Malaysian commemorate where this business has been formed. So the Chinese counterpart and also the head office being in UK in Hattel, while they were very much wanting to shift 
you know, the business into a new environment. That's where they decided that electric cars is the way to go. In fact, uh, a lot of news has been shown around the world whereby the current electric plant is being built in Wuhan. This plant is due to be ready somewhere next year where they will start to roll out electric cars. Having said this, Lotus is very soon to launch a new sports car, which is the Emira. And this will also be the so-called their last combustion performance car before they shift gear into an all-electric vehicle. In fact, from uh, 2022, Hansoff, there will be four new electric cars that will be added into the family. Aside from the Emira, that they are launching as we speak, making its debut somewhere early next year. Somewhere towards the end of next year, you'll see the all new electric vehicles from, from Lotus. And then three other models will continue from there on up to 2026, where they will also introduce a all new electric sports car. So Lotus has going to shift gears in terms of, they're still continuing the lightweight technology, but they are going all electric. Wow, what kind of an environmental impact can we expect from this very significant change on your side? Actually, there would not be the impact because firstly, it's going to be all electric. So you know, electric cars are literally 100% environmentally friendly. But I guess what is good for the organization is that they're, they're trying to bring on board new customers onto the, into the brand, of course. But from an environment perspective, they're not doing any harm, but they are making vehicles that are a lot lighter. They are claimed to be at least 37% even lighter than the Emira. So it's going to be lightweight, extremely friendly to the environment. It's going to give a lot more choices to the consumers. On that point, right, I think that was quite distinctively different from a lot of the EVs that I've heard of because generally EV tends to be heavier, right? Because of the batteries and all those things. And you've been able to actually reduce that weight by 37%. That's quite a remarkable feat, you know? That's what Lotus has always been as a car. They use all aluminium chassis, they use a lot of fiberglass part, makes the car extremely light in a sense. I'm sure it's going to be carried into the new world. Recently, right, just to talk about the environmentally social trend that's been going on, there's an actual increasing interest in disclosures about how climate-friendly, environmental-friendly things are in terms of consumer as well as the corporate space. Right? Can we sort of like expect the Lotus EVs to next time come with a certificate or an indication that how environmentally friendly the impact is when you buy such a vehicle? I wouldn't be surprised there will be, uh, whilst they haven't announced. I'm sure they will because Lotus is kind of proud in terms of each and every car they produce as we speak. In the current environment, they have things what we call the Certificate of Providence that actually tells the owner how many of this car was built, how many of this colour was sold into the Singapore market. So I'm not surprised if Lotus will even tell you, you know, if you buy this car itself, you're actually helping the world by like X percentage because you're cutting down so much more carbon footprint and the car is made out of XYZ percentage of cycle materials and whatsoever. Now to make such a drastic and positive transition from a technology standpoint and even whatever things that you're trying to do, the research and development, so what would be the kind of core areas of investment that has been made so far to make this transition happen? So this whole Wuhan facilities is huge. We're talking about 900,000 square meters of space. So it's a huge plot of land that they've purchased that can manufacture 150,000 cars a year. Having said this, they also set up a what we call a new Lotus Technology Headquarters in that same piece of land, but they're dedicated an area which is called the Lotus 
technology headquarters that will be completed in 2024. So it's like a three-pronged approach what they're doing here. China, because they are one of the early adopters in electric vehicles, this whole technology center headquarters in Wuhan will share what's happening on the ground now. Headquarters being in Hattel, UK, that will not change. That's where the brains is. And then they also have the so-called the R&D in the European environment, Germany, so to speak. There's a three-pronged approach where China will feed information and then Germany and London will then do the R&D and decide on what goes into the car. But the manufacturing will still come from the China plant, which is in Wuhan. Yeah, because in China, it's one of the world's highest adoption rate when it comes to EV. I'm sure they've got a lot more data points to improve the technology anyways, right? Which is kind of smart in a sense. I think the way they do this is kind of right because you need that high usage to get good data or best practices in market and then bring it back to the headquarters and then look at it holistically and see what's best for the brand. So do you see any of such challenges as Lotus cars move towards all electric vehicles? Actually, no, because the uh, EU has already said that by 2024, if you are not on EV, you can forget about producing a car. It's sad news to the petrol heads because by 2024, you can never buy a brand new combustion engine car off a showroom because uh, it will be an all-electric environment. Yeah, you can't do all that you know, revving and then <laughs> trying to get the sound out, right? The combustion sound. It's just like the younger generation these days, nobody drives stick shift cars anymore. So when do you expect all this transition to be truly completed then? The good thing about Lotus is they have already put up the statement so early in the game whereby they already said that by 2026, they will even have their electric sports car. Give and take, I guess by 27, 28, they will be all ready. In fact, I guess there will be even more cars that will be rolled out because they would have heaps of experience by 2025 because they would have launched like easily four electric cars by then. I guess for them, they're way ahead of the game. That's good, right? I mean, a lot of the companies and organizations, not only in the automobile industry, you'll find that everyone's heading towards the 2030. I think that's the critical point that everyone's aiming for, right? Now, the fact that Lotus is actually way ahead of the game, it's even better. I mean, it's really outstanding. So with that, maybe I can shift gears and then ask you, okay? Let's get up close and personal with you on about your leadership views on some of these things that's happening. So what do you think is your vision of the EV industry as a whole then? So the manufacturers, is, the good thing is they should look at how they can recycle, use recyclable materials in the car, aside to just battery, so to speak, and then adopt a lightweight approach. Because it's a two-pronged approach. While you're using electric, you are sort of like reducing carbon footprint, but not forgetting what provides electricity. There's still the back-end stuff. So if you're going to just all electric, which is good, you should make your car lightweight because that consumes a lot lesser power. On the contrary, what goes into the car, if you speak today, there's so much waste out there. In fact, with this COVID, I think there was reports that like 50, 60% more waste than ever you know, before. If this waste material could somehow go back into the car, that would be probably an excellent approach in a sense. I like your way of looking at it. A more holistic approach to not just the engine itself, but the whole car, all the parts of the car should at least go in that same direction as well. That's great. I'm pretty sure someone is really working on it and someone is really looking at it. It's just that who is going to be the first to put onto the marketplace. That's all, you know. We know that the automotive industry never operates independently and it's always part of a much larger ecosystem as we've mentioned earlier. They're like the charging points, the infrastructure, the providers of the energy that we're talking about. So maybe if I can ask you, 
what's your wish list? Especially because we know that the governments have to be involved in this, right? At these early stages to support this fledging EV industry. What would be your wish list for them? Maybe going back a bit to my earlier point would be incentives. That's where you get people wanting to come on board and then the ease of usage. It must be ease of usage and the convenience of using electric vehicles. These are the areas, you know, the government can come in and help to get people on board electric cars a lot faster in a sense, yeah. Is there any request that you have to partner with leaders listening in right now? To all the leaders out there, you know, I think it's a very competitive environment we are working towards too, you know, or we're in. But I guess we constantly have to think out of the box. We cannot do the things that we used to do day after day. We need to come up with things that it's really bold and uniquely different. You know, just like what I said, if somebody can come up with a car that's fully 100% recyclable, it's made out of waste, but yet safe, yet good looking, powerful, but it's a, it's a 360 kind of approach. That's where we should be working towards too. Uh. Everybody is trying to put a lot more environmentally friendly stuff into the whole building. Uh, gone are the days where the walls between your rooms are made of bricks. Now it's just purely partition. That's it. It is going green. From an architectural standpoint, that can be done. I don't see why it cannot be done in an in automotive environment. So finally, before we part, I just wanted to ask you, right? What's your wish for everyone out there towards a more sustainable or environmentally friendly future? Well, I guess if everybody takes a serious approach in terms of before they do something sometimes, think a little bit more before they start doing it. Example, as simple as taking your car to drive. If you start to plan your journey better, try to take a shorter route, do a bit more research, where are there traffic jams, try to avoid those areas. If everybody puts in a part, safe kilometer or two, or sometimes close enough, don't drive, just walk, if everyone do a part, I think the environment will live a lot longer. Wow, thank you so much. Those are very wonderful parting thoughts. Thank you, Sebastian, for being on our podcast for the 8th QED Changemaker Series. Really appreciate your time and your leadership perspective on the topic of ESG. Thank you so much. Most of all, thank you listeners for tuning in to our QED Changemaker Series podcast. For more information on QED's leadership development solutions, email us at info at qed.sg. That's info at qed.sg. Do remember to subscribe to our channel and be updated on our latest episodes. I'm your host, Ryan Lim, and I look forward to having you in our next episode. Thank you.